it's not about not being afraid. It's about doing it anyway. And I think that that's a message that both men and women need to hear, but I think it's probably especially, especially for women that something can make you really uncomfortable, but you do it anyway. And I mean, you want to be obviously like conscious of I'm doing this because like, I think it's going to be good for my business, but don't let the fear of, of looking bad or the fear of humiliation stop you from doing things that are going to be really good for your business that are basically, you know, putting yourself out there. Hello, hello. Welcome to So Lewis Women, where we're all about turning your expertise into wealth and impact. I'm Rochelle Moulton, and today I'm here with Emily O'Meer, who I like and respect so much. And one, because she pretty much says exactly what she thinks, and it's always interesting. And two, because she's never shied away from adventure or made excuses, even when life dealt her a rough hand. So Emily helps open source startups accelerate revenue growth with killer positioning. She writes about entrepreneurship for engineers and hosts The Business of Open Source, a podcast about building open source companies. And she's also a card-carrying member of the Soloist Women community. So Emily, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Rochelle. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. So so we could talk about your recent move from the U.S. to Paris, and I suspect we will. Um, but I know that that's not even close to the riskiest move you've made. So we've got a lot to talk about. I'd like to start with what made you decide to first start your business. Do I remember rightly, did you begin as a content writer? Yes. So I'm going to go ahead and start at the beginning-ish, if that works for you. Sure. So first of all, like, thank you for having me on on the show. And I also just wanted to mention like why I'm so excited to come on the, on the show. There's something in it for me too, which is that I've noticed at this point in my career that a lot of things that I did really early on that didn't used to really make sense to me are starting to make sense. Like I feel like I'm pulling together a lot of experiences that that I've had, but I still feel like it's a little bit disjointed. And so I, I'm actually like using this as an opportunity to figure out where all the threads are and make sense of things. Ooh. So I'm going to go ahead and start at the beginning. So I am from Oregon. I lived in Switzerland when I was in high school. When I was in college, I, I lived in Russia for a while. Well, I did like a year in Russia, but I also worked in a bar there. So it was not like your average year abroad in some ways, some very important ways. Um, and then I finished college and I was like, uh, got to get a job and got like an office job. And I just like, <laughs> so bad, <laughs> so bad. And I think a lot of people in the community have had the experience of like getting a job and then being like, what the hell was I thinking? Like, this is, this is not me, but I got the hell out of there. I moved to Spain with my boyfriend at the time who later became my husband. And you could say like, that was the first time that I had a business. I was like, I was teaching English, but it was freelance. So like I had to go, I had to hustle for clients and stuff like that. And then I also had an idea to build a company doing audio podcast tours. This never took off. Um, I didn't know that about your story. Okay, I know. I know. There's a lot of there's a lot of things you don't know about me, Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Let's hear them all. <laughs> so, um, 
I had this idea and at the time iPods were kind of new and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so somebody asked me or no. So I asked somebody like, how, how do I build a website? Like, I don't, I don't know any of that. And they recommended that I uh, use this software called Drupal. Drupal incidentally is an open source software. So is WordPress, which is their main competitor, at least at the time. And, uh, Anyway, WordPress would have been the better option. Drupal is really, really fucking complicated. And this was terrible advice, but I like figured out how to do it. And I built this website on, on Drupal. I never, like, I never made a business out of my iPod tour guides. Um, but I did, I did record, like I did record actually a bunch of, like they existed. It's just that I was really good at marketing myself as a service provider and not good at marketing like a product. I wouldn't even say that I was not good at marketing a product. Like I I lacked the self-confidence to even like tell people that this existed. And that's a actually, problem. <laughs> yeah. And and in fact when I think back now as somebody who like later went on to professionally do marketing communications, I, I think that part of uh, some companies even real companies, not like my fake company, are that like it's a lack of confidence issue that can be behind some marketing issues. Uh, almost like people not being really confident that like, hey, this thing I created is like so cool that you should check it out and and mm-hmm. buy it. So anyway, um, then I, after a couple of years, I moved to New York City. I was a tour guide, so. I had the tour, the podcast tour idea. So I was like, how, how am I going to figure out how that works? Well, I'm going to be a tour guide when I move to New York. So I did that. I did tours in, I did tours in English. I also did tours in German and Spanish and I really liked it. I, it also was really good for learning how to be comfortable speaking like with public speaking. Cause like every day mm. you were speaking in front of a group and it was always different. There was always something that you couldn't control about what was going on. So I did that. Then I went to graduate school. Uh, I went to graduate school at uh, Columbia university and then here in Paris at Sciences Po and then tried to be a freelance journalist for three years. I went to journalism school and I, that like being a journalist, that was financially an absolute complete failure. Yeah. Period. (laughs) Well, usually nobody goes into journalism for the money. Yeah. Well, you don't go into journalism for the money, but like you do hope to like be living somewhere like slightly above the poverty line and that didn't work out for me. So anyway, at a certain point, well, not just at a certain point. So then I got married. Then a couple of years later, I got pregnant and my husband, when I was pregnant, was diagnosed with cancer and uh, he fucking died. So that sucked. Mm. And that was, it was actually not just his death that made me like, wow, I better like stop fucking around and like make some money that made me decide that like, I, I really need to get serious about like a business that actually pays. And guess what? Journalism is not a business that pays. I didn't start my business immediately, it, incidentally. So my mom also died a, a year after my husband. So it was like an infant. My mom was sick. I was taking care of her. So your husband passed away after your daughter was born. Yeah, two months after she was born. But he was very ill. So he he, he was diagnosed with cancer when I was uh, five months pregnant. And then uh, and he was uh, like from moment of diagnosis to his death, very, very ill 
like increasingly ill, but like even at the beginning, we're talking like multiple hospitalizations, like doctor's appointments almost every day. I mean, it was really a nightmare. And I do want to like put this out there because a lot of people have asked me, they're like, Emily, how did you keep your business going? Well, all these other things were going on. And I'm like, I didn't like, I mean, you don't like there, there is a point at which you just can't realistically keep a business going because it, so in the situation I'm, I'm thinking about literally like there would be an urgent doctor's appointment, like every other day, you can't have a meeting with a client like scheduled because you would just be canceling it all the time. And you have all these other, you know, managing somebody's illness is a, it's like a job in and of itself. Like you're making appointments. Anyway, long story short, if you're like going through a really rough time like that, do not think, oh, everyone else out there is like managing this and keeping their business afloat because they're not. They're not. Exactly. And so where were you in the world when all this happened? Were you back in the States or were you overseas? Yeah, I was I was in Portland. Okay. And then your mother passed away. So here you are. Yep with really lots of major, somewhat terrifying life changes. So what did you do? (laughs) Well, my husband was from Nicaragua, and um, I I moved to Nicaragua. (laughs) (laughs) Which is sort of funny to talk about, like, afterwards. But at the time, I was like, well, in spite of being very cynical about journalism, um, I had a book project that I wanted to work on that required doing research in Nicaragua. It's a, a book that is still worth, it sh- should be written. Um, I'm not sure if the archives that I was researching at um, still exist. I hope so. But so my mom died and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving to Nicaragua. Um, and yeah, my daughter was 20 months old when we moved there. Gutsy. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I didn't really even think, I, I didn't think like that. I think it also just goes to show you how sometimes the, you know, people are different. The things that seem like risky or gutsy to you. Uh, at the time, I was just like, I want to write this book. Uh, I want to make sure my daughter gets Nicaraguan citizenship. You know, not that like a Nicaraguan passport is like the golden ticket, but uh, it, I thought it was really good to have a connection to her dad. Yeah, it's her father. And, you know, and I wanted to write this book and plus like stuff is cheap in Nicaragua and like you can, like childcare doesn't cost an arm and a leg. So it's like, that's, that's also not a bad thing. So yeah. And, you know, I'd been there before, like I kind of didn't know a hundred percent what I was getting into, but like it it wasn't a total unknown either. And so what happened while you were there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know so, the answer, but I yeah, want to hear you know the I, answer. Our, our listeners want to hear this. So um Nicaragua being like not a very large country doesn't always get tons of news coverage, but in 2018 there was um pretty massive civil unrest that for a while at least you know from from on the ground it looked like it was going to civil war. It didn't. The government sort of effectively um though fairly violently suppressed the the civil unrest that was going on. But yeah, so I left. There was a a, a period of about a week where everybody that I knew, like all the expats, all the Nicaraguans with like the means to do so, they like fled the country. Some people ended up going back, but far from everybody. So yeah, then here we are, we're 
a little over two years after my husband had died and my mom, my mom's died and, and I've just like fled Nicaragua. I, I will mention like, if you ever have to buy a ticket at the airport, this is a bad situation. <laughs> so um, I just have this picture in my head of you and your daughter, like fleeing for your lives, trying to get the last plane out. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that like dramatic, but yeah, there was there was like no moment when I really feared for my life. But it was it was just that you, you know, when you're in a situation like that, that's that's fluid, you want to sort of mentally make a line like at, at what point does this become untenable for us to stay? And what happened is like the the line was crossed. We actually had plane tickets to come back to the US just for the summer. And they were for like, like a week later. And I was like, no, we're not waiting a week. Mm. We're, going, we're going to the airport and and like leaving now. So on the one hand, I think it was probably like less dramatic than it sounds. On the other hand, I, I think in terms of how it affected me emotionally, not because of the like the drama of like leaving the country in a rush, but rather that I had to abandon this. First of all, I had to abandon this professional project that had been fairly important to me. And I had to sort of, abandon what I thought of as was my plan for the next several years at least. Mm. And at the same time, like nobody could relate unless they had been there. Whereas at least when you have a conversation with someone and you're like, my husband died, they're like, oh, I have a mental image of what that would be like. Or my mom died. Okay. I can like, I have, I have in my head an understanding of what that means, but like, I just had to abandon this project that was really important to me and leave this country. It wasn't my country, but like I was invested in staying there for a while and I had a pretty real connection because of my husband. And now I'm like sleeping on a mattress on the floor of my dad's spare bedroom with my two-year-old daughter and like thinking, what the fuck's next? That's not a thing that people could relate to. And like that was really the moment I was like, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to go next. And at that point I had my business, my, my business had already been started for, I'd been working on it for a good year and a half. I started it before um, moving to Nicaragua. Uh, so I knew where I was going with my business, but I had no fucking idea what I was doing with my life. It was like the third, the third straw or the, you know, the, the third yeah. shoe drops and it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty intense. So I tried to answer your your question as fully as possible <laughs> 20 minutes later. I mean, no, but this this is why I wanted you to come on the show because this odyssey is so unusual and yet there are so many pieces of this that are relatable. I mean, most of us have been metaphorically on the mattress wondering what's next. You know, not your specific set of circumstances, but I mean, the question becomes, what do you do? when you're at your lowest point? Like, how do you get yourself back up and do the next thing, right? So so your next thing was the, shall I call it a writing business, content strategy, content writing? Yeah. So at the time, and that wasn't new, when I sort of restarted my professional life after my husband's death, actually, after my husband's death, as my mom was declining, I had really thought through how do I take the skills that I already have, apply them to something that I think is reasonably interesting 
that I'm not going to hate doing, but also where they're willing to pay me a good amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I want to highlight here that I was extraordinarily mercenary when I first started my business because I was not thinking like, how am I going to make a positive change in the world? No, I, fuck that. I was thinking, <laughs> how am I going to work the minimum amount of time and make the maximum amount of money with my current skill set? And that was definitely the right thing to do at the time. And yeah, so like content marketing, like content writing was what I was doing. I already sort of knew something about that world, but it's a pretty common path for former journalists to take. Mm -hmm. And I not immediately, but slowly broke into writing for um, technology companies. And I actually, I had that experience already with, with uh, Drupal, with building Drupal websites. And I actually, after Sputnik Guides, which was the tour guides, I had another failed business idea that was a online magazine for English learners, when for which I created a much more complex website using Drupal that actually like used a lot of Drupal's capabilities. And uh, what else did I do? I think it, like ver- a very small number of people paid me to make websites for them, which was probably not a good idea on their part. But anyway, <laughs> so I already had a non-zero experience with um, technology, shall we say. But I sort of identified that as an area where there was money, that I was fairly interested in it, and also that I had skills that would be useful. And I think another thing that really set me apart is that I, well, I really like to learn stuff. And so the first time I was going to work with a startup that has actually since gone out of business, which is not uncommon for startups, that was in the serverless space. But anyway, so like I did a bunch of research before I met with them and I was like sort of more or less understood what their space was all about. And they ended up being super impressed because they were like, wow, most writers, eh, they they wouldn't even have bothered to figure that out and they they wouldn't they wouldn't know. So then that was how they ended up hiring me to to do writing work for them. And I just wasn't intimidated by by you know something that I w- wasn't familiar with already. Um, mm-hmm. and then I ended up, I don't know if I should say slowly, because it actually happened fairly quickly, moving into writing exclusively for people in a, startups predominantly, also some larger companies in a very specific, very technical space. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how it happened. I just want to like track some of this. So you came back from Nicaragua, you'd already had your business um, and then you started really kind of niching in in some ways, niching down a little bit here. How long did it take you to hit your first hundred thousand? Do you remember? Uh, yes, I do. It, I guess suppose it kind of depends on how you count. Uh, my first year in business, I think I made in the vicinity of thirty thousand. In the second year. The second year was the year of the flight from Nicaragua. It was between seventy and eighty thousand. I don't remember exactly what. The third year, I made over two hundred grand. Ah, third year was the charm. Yeah, that's awesome. So let me ask you this: What do you see? I'm curious. Is your gutsiest, riskiest move so far, business wise? I mean, Nicaragua was that like? Do you think that was your gutsiest or? Was there another one? 
<laughs> I'm going to have to think about this. So I do think that what happens in conversations with people is that I definitely do things that other people perceive as being really ballsy. And to me, I'm just like, I don't know, it's not really that risky. I will share something I'm working on right now that feels really risky, which is putting on a conference. And mm. I spent this morning looking at venues. And at some point this week, probably, I will have to sign a contract and like put some money down on a venue. It's not actually a huge amount of money, but this feels much risky. This, this feels yes. like the riskiest thing that I've ever done. Even though the amount of money on the line, it isn't actually a massive amount of money. Like I've spent over the life of my podcast, I've spent like drastically more money on my podcast than I, I just would spend on this venue and like th that I would lose if this, mm -hmm. if this conference is a total fail. But nonetheless, the idea of like putting money down on a venue for some reason, this like that scares the shit out of me. Well, and this is what's so great because the perception of risk is very personal, right? I mean, because I remember when we were talking about this and I said, oh, you know, let's talk about your move to Paris. And you're like, that's not even close to my riskiest thing yet. So let's dial into risk some more. I mean, I'm not even sure where to start because there's so many juicy avenues we could explore here. But one of the things that you mentioned offline is the difference between something that is risky and something that feels risky. Shall we start with that? Yes, absolutely. This is a really interesting concept for me because I would say 99% of things that feel risky to us are, are not actually risky. So when I think of like, what is something that that is a real risk? It's like, is, is it likely that this is going to harm you? Like, are you putting your life or your health at risk or that the of somebody who's somebody who you love? There are, of course, financial risks that if they go wrong, could really hurt you. But most of us are not out there making what people would consider like really stupid moves, right? And I think most people know the difference between, you know, oh, it feels risky to me to put like a deposit of 10 grand for a conference venue versus like, you know, and I'm somebody who can afford to spend 10 grand on on something and like lose it. I would I would not be happy if I lose if I lose 10 grand, but like I would be okay. Mm -hmm. Versus like let's spend let's like mortgage the house and we don't have any yeah. savings. Conversely, you know, if you if 10 grand is all you have, then like don't don't put that as a deposit on a conference venue. That's stupid. But there's a lot of things that feel really risky. So a lot of things feel really risky, I think, because we fear um, humiliation more than anything. Mm. And in fact, when I say the idea of putting money down for this conference venue feels risky, what feels risky to me, it's, it's partially like I'm, I might lose my money. But it's because in doing something like putting on a conference, I'm really sticking my neck out there and saying, hey, I have this idea. I think I can put on an, a really awesome conference and you should come. And by the way, you should buy a ticket. And by the way, I'm going to have to talk to sponsors and they're going to like, I'm going to tell them like, hey, you should pay for this. You should sponsor it. And that risks people saying like, actually, no, your idea is dumb or just like, I'm not really that interested. And it, it risks being a failure 
in a much more public way than just like, oh, I privately lost 10 grand. So for a lot of people, things that are feel like a risk of any sort of public humiliation feel incredibly scary. When in fact, first of all, the actual risk of like people really thinking poorly of you is pretty low because most people have other stuff going in their life. They're not going to like spend very much time thinking about like, oh my God, Emily is such a loser. They don't have time. No, They're they so don't have time. They don't absorbed Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Nobody's going to like think, even if they do think that I'm a loser, like they're not going to think that for less, for more than, you know, two minutes and they're going to move on with their life and they're not going to give it another thought. So I really think that that's part of it. Now I will go out on a limb. I think this is a problem that women have more than men on average. That's where I wanted to go. (laughs) You tease this in our email exchange. So what are women doing? So there's a lot of a lot of ways that I could tease this out. Um, first of all, I think there's been sort of research about sort of how women tend to arrange their social structures, and it's like the way that women sort of one up each other, et cetera. It's all based on like social approval and things like that. But that means that the risk of humiliating yourself is in some ways like greater than if you're a guy and like it just matters that like I don't know your biceps are biggest or what I don't know now I'm being totally politically incorrect but the the point being that there are differences in the way women manage their social networks and tend to try to one up each other to the way that that men try to do that so I think that that plays into this I think there's also some other stuff. So I have a daughter. I think that when you're a parent and you see how children, like how male and female children interact with each other and react to situations and how, how like the differences, I think it's really interesting to see that and then like look at your professional network and be like, oh, I can see this as a, like this professional network happening as a result of things both external factors like sexism that happens that I totally saw, I can totally see my daughter experiencing, but also my daughter and other girls reacting in a way to situations that is different from the way you see boys do on average. We're socialized differently. We're socialized differently. Personally, I believe that like on average, girls and women are also different. Like the bell curve of how we tend to react to different stimuli is different. But I do think if you're running a business, you have to put yourself out there. And I have a lot of pep talks with my daughter about how it's not about not being afraid. It's about doing it anyway. And I think that that's a message that both men and women need to hear. But I think it's probably especially especially for women that something can make you really uncomfortable, but you do it anyway. And I mean, you want to be obviously like conscious of I'm doing this because like I think it's going to be good for my business, but don't let the fear of of looking bad or the fear of humiliation stop you from doing things that are going to be really good for your business that are that are basically, you know, putting yourself out there. So I, I promised a really concrete example. I recently went to a conference. There was a part of it that was an unconference format. And that means that participants basically propose different topics and then like the person who proposes it leads like a little discussion about this topic. So 
I was in the second to last session of the day, and I had actually gone to this part. I, I speak at a lot of conferences, but this portion of the conference I had gone to thinking that my goal was to learn. It wasn't to speak. But I realized in the second to last session that I had not seen a single woman leading one of these sessions. And I do go to tech conferences. There's usually more men than women. But this particular portion of the conference was pretty close to 50-50 as far as I could tell. And like, we're talking, uh, there was like 30, 40 sessions. And I was like, oh my God, I better go see if there's like that, that final slot has any spaces in it. And like, think about what I can lead a, a group on because like, we got to have at least one woman. Not a single one, 50% of the group and not a single one. It ended up that I, I had missed the, the one woman. I'm pretty sure that she was the only other one though. I'm not totally certain. But um, but yeah, I, I I did end up talking to one other woman who um had had led a, a discussion group, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that she was the only one. So my point being here, though, that this was unconference style. Like you can't claim that it was bias right. in the selection committee because there was no selection committee. It depended on individuals saying, "Hey, I have this idea. I want to talk about it." My idea is worth listening to. And the point was, like, the women just didn't do it. And, you know, even if I missed, maybe I missed more than, maybe I missed a, a couple more. The, the point is, like, it was really, really obvious to me that even though it was like a pretty close to 50-50 breakdown of gender, the women were absolutely abysmally underrepresented in the people leading the discussions. And yeah, I, you just, and you can't say that it was the selection team that did it. Exactly. There well, yeah. I mean, I've talked a lot about this lately on both podcasts. There is this idea about voice and using our voice. And I've been guilty of it too. There are times that I should have spoken up that I didn't. And, you know, if I've learned nothing in the last five or 10 years, it's speak up and have something to say. And I think sometimes for women, it's easier when we're, we're making it about something bigger than ourselves, right? We make it about the revolution we're leading, the transformation we want in the lives of others. And those are all positive reasons to speak up, but we have to speak no matter what, or we're not going to get heard. Yeah. And I mean, and I think you do, you have to, you have to step up. And like I said already, like, it's not about not being afraid. It's about doing it anyway. And then you build the muscle and then it's like, I'm not that nervous about public speaking anymore. It's not necessarily because I think I'm an awesome public speaker, but like I was a tour guide for three years and in three languages, I might yeah, add. And, and I was like talking in front of people all the time. Now I've talked at a lot of conferences and I do try to improve my public speaking, but I think, you know, you, you build the muscle and it's not scary anymore after a while. Yeah. I felt that way about this podcast. For some reason, I was really afraid to do this podcast and I've been doing one with a co-host for six years. So it's not like I don't know what to do, but being, you know, in charge of every aspect of it and putting my stamp on it, it took me a little while to commit. But once I did, and once I started using my voice, try to shut me up now. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm conscious of the time, but I just, I want to ask you one more question about your latest move to Paris. So what have you found like moving to Paris now? It's only been, what is it? Six months? 
Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. So has that uncovered anything for you? Has it changed like how you work or or how you collaborate with people? Dramatically, actually. So I mentioned earlier that when I started my business, I was really like a mercenary. And interestingly enough, as I sort of moved up the strategy chain, I would say that I stopped being less mercenary. And I also switched my focus. So you noticed at the beginning, I talked about working with really technical companies. Now I work specifically with open source companies. And that's because I think that they have really specific challenges and they make up a subset of the companies that I was working with before. But it's not it's not a perfect overlap. It's not like a target with my, my previous market that I worked in. But I found that the strategy issues that open source companies have are more interesting to me. Also, I think that I have some almost like a psychological affinity with uh, open source founders. So open source is really all about like building a community. It's sort of uh, like the hippie software developers. Um, <laughs> open source is free. And then if you're building a company around it, then you obviously like you're building a software company, you need to make money. And this creates a tension that it exists inside companies. And that's part of the work that I do is helping to manage uh, this tension. But in my experience, it it also can exist inside founders themselves. It's like a part of them is Mm. really attracted to the open source, like the community building and like building this amazing, like technologically perfect product and having this amazing community. And then there's also the part of them that uh, is like, hey, show me the money. And I think that I have a little bit of that myself too. I've probably become like more and more of a capitalist over the years, but I definitely have that like sort of psychological affinity with the the types of companies that I work with. Mm-hmm. And I really like the challenge of of helping people manage that tension. So I have become less of a mercenary over the years. One of the reasons, there's a lot of reasons I moved to Paris. One of the reasons was because I wanted more opportunities to do professional events and work with companies face-to-face. I know everybody's all in on remote work. I know. I, I, I feel somebody cringing right now, but I love it. I love it. There's, I, I firmly, I mean, I travel all over the world to go to conferences. I would not do that if I didn't like really firmly believe in the power of face-to-face interactions. And I wanted more of an ability to do that than I had in Oregon. I wanted to collaborate more with other people. Didn't necessarily need to move to Paris to to do that, but that was one of the sort of goals of the year was to do more projects with other people and sort of like be less of a lone wolf, basically. And that has definitely been a success. Um, I have a, a former client that I'm collaborating with to organize a conference. I've organized a, a local happy hour for people that are in the space with a local startup, uh, a local here in Paris. Just uh, next week, I'm going to a conference actually in San Francisco and I'm working with another person. Actually, uh, she's a consultant, but like she runs a consulting firm and we're collaborating to put on a like a picnic lunch after this conference is over. Um, So that has been like an, an undeniable success, just, you know, doing things with other people and yeah, I mean, I think I think moving to Paris has made things like that possible. I would almost say that as I've become less of a mercenary, I have been 
more attracted to the idea of blurring the line between my personal and professional life. So five years ago, I was like, I'm done at three o'clock. And I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. think about work. The idea of going to an event after, I wouldn't have wanted to do that. Um, but now, I think because I'm more excited about my business, I'm more excited about the types of projects I'm working on. I have more of a personal investment in helping the the companies that I work with. Maybe I like my work a little bit too much. So I have no problem like getting a babysitter so that I can go to a, a happy hour that's like at 7 p.m. I think that's awesome. And again, that's something I wouldn't have done five years ago. Well, I, I like the way you called that blurring the lines because I think we all have different ways of managing our business and our lives, and there's no one right way. And what I love about what you described is you move from one model to another. And it, and you might move back again at some point. I don't mean back to the US. I mean back to where you keep it more, more separate. But it doesn't matter. It's what works for you and kind of figuring out what that looks like. So just one last question, Emily, which I ask mm -hmm. everybody, which is if you could go back to who you were when you first started your business, what's the one thing you'd advise her to do? So, you know, it's a uh, part of me wants to say like, you sh I should have like niched down and res and increased my prices sooner. But like, honestly, I move, I move pretty fast on that. Like in retrospect, I don't think that's would have been realistic advice. And I mean, I, I kind of wish I had like spent less time being a journalist, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's, that's more like a financial regret. You're like, gosh, what if I had spent those three years like actually making money? But uh, it's really hard. So now I will end with uh, some thoughts about regret and also envy. So these are two emotions that I think that get a bad rap, but I think they're really useful. So it's really useful to notice when you feel regret because it tells you what you should do in the future. The same goes mm -hmm. for envy. I know there's a lot of people out there that are like, you shouldn't feel envy ever, which is like, it just, it's stupid because everyone's, and you're yeah. going to be envious. It's human. It's human. So when you feel envy, pay attention because that's telling you what you really want. And if you tell yourself, oh, like, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be envious, then you won't pay attention to those signals. But I think regret and envy are two emotions that will give you really strong clues about what you should do in the future so that you avoid the regret. And also, you know, so that you avoid the envy because you get it for yourself. So anyway, that's, that's what yeah. I'll end on. Yeah, I like that. Well, they're signs, they're signposts. And yes. the more we pay attention to those, the better off we're going to be or the faster we're going to get where we want to go. And if your friend says, hey, I felt envious about XYZ, don't tell them to shut up and or like to be like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what, what could you do in your life so that you... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That would be the friend you want to have. Like, is that yeah. a valuable friend or what? Versus the one who kind of turns away feeling like, oh, gee, I've just, I've outshined someone that I didn't mean to outshine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I It's it's hard. It's hard for me to pinpoint a regret or or a thing that I would tell myself to do differently because 
you know, okay, uh, here's something I'll think of. I would say I would focus on building relationships with people sooner. I have not done a bad job on this, but I think it was not a focus of mine at the beginning. And it doesn't go with being a mercenary, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is now. It is absolutely now. And yeah, I think that's, uh, it also makes you like your your work uh, a lot more. A lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Emily, thank you. (laughs) This is awesome. You know, you lived up to my hype of being right up front and telling it like it is and sharing your experiences. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Well, we're going to be putting uh, your links in the show notes, but where's the best place for people to learn more about you and your work? Uh, So I'm very active on LinkedIn. I also have a website, which is emilyomir.com. And I have a lot of cool stuff on my website. I have a podcast, The Business of Open Source. Um, I have an ebook that I wrote about positioning open source projects. Yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you. So that's it for this episode. I hope you'll join us next time for Soloist Women. Bye-bye.